Welcome to the Stepping Out of Line podcast hosted by me, Leo Gibbons. This podcast examines those who have, in their own way, stood out from the crowd and stood by what they believe in. If you share my fascination with public figures who are not afraid to be themselves and follow their own path, this might just be the podcast for you. And now, to the preamble. I was nine when 9-11 took place. I was 14 when 7-7 happened. And I remember the panic in my school corridors. I was at a music festival in Paris the weekend before the Bataclan attack. It seems totally obvious to me that someone of my generation would be interested in Islamism and jihadism. But the world of counter-extremism is so closed and that's what makes my guest today, Liam Duffy, so refreshing. In a way, he opens up the world of counter-extremism to lay people like me. If you're in education, in local government, in the police, or you're a politician, I think you need to listen to podcasts like this. This podcast was recorded soon after the Wakefield School incident, and that's where we open. In the latter part of the pod, We'll discuss the quandary of when to label political ideas as extreme. When should an ideology or movement be tackled through state counter-extremism measures, be it through prescribing or dissolving organisations, or referring people to desistance or disengagement programmes? Or when should an ideology or movement only be tackled in the public square through debates, open challenge, and through civil society campaigning? i.e. without the heavy hand of the state. It's a really interesting debate and something me and Liam get stuck into as we discuss the future of the prevent strategy. I hope you enjoy this podcast. I found it really enlightening and really interesting. Hope you enjoy. My guest today is Liam Duffy, a researcher, speaker and trainer in counter-terrorism based in London and a strategic advisor for the Counter-Extremism Project. Liam is one of the few experts in counter-extremism who's willing to engage openly in the public square. He's a columnist for Unheard and has written for the likes of the New Statesman, the Jewish Chronicle and the Spectator. Liam, thank you for coming on to my show. Thank you. Thanks for the kind introduction. I am very mindful that this podcast will be released in a few months' time, but I felt it probably important to engage in the hot topic and the news items today. Which is the incident at Kettlefort High School in Wakefield. Um, as this will be coming out in a few months, I'll probably just recap on the situation and what went down in the school. From what I've gathered, the incident that caused such chaos was a 14-year-old boy who is on the autistic spectrum, has autism, lost a bet with some friends over Call of Duty, and that losing that bet meant he bought a copy of the Quran, brought it into school, and at some point it was sort of bandied around, it was knocked out of his hand, and the book was scuffed. Their teacher said that there was no malicious intent involved. However, 
the story of this copy of the Quran getting damaged sort of spread like wildfire, escalated and exaggerated, and it caused a big furore in the local community. I think from this point onwards, it might be best for you to take the handle on the story and just outline what happened after the incident. And then we'll start talking about what it means yeah. and what it says about multiculturalism in Britain. Yeah. Um, so by, like by the time this comes out, maybe, you know, maybe there will be more details that we know. Like there's, there's, we don't know a whole lot about the original incident. Um, I'll be on it. Like I've seen some people saying, you know, we don't know the full facts and stuff and we need to wait before making a judgment. And to an extent, like I get that, but also nothing will change. I don't think any piece of information you can give me now about what happened will change what followed which was the scene of like a head teacher, a local police officer and a mother of one of the pupils involved at a local mosque with like a, an elected councillor as well, elected local councillor, basically, ex- you know, with the mother kind of explaining why, you know, no intent was, uh, no, no malicious intent was behind this, which is what the school determined and stressed as well. But, but basically pleading innocence and, why this isn't worth getting, uh, you know, heated about, uh, isn't worth any unrest, any certainly not worth any violence or anything like that. And obviously, we we heard that there were death threats as well. But yeah, it was just it, it was just a really like egregious spectacle. Um, and you know, no matter like I said, no matter what details come out, the facts are that that scene happened under the pretense of diffusing tensions or cooling tensions because and it involved the mother, the head teacher and the police officer basically having felt compelled to do this because of there was a looming risk, whether it was expressed clearly like explicitly or not, there, there was a looming risk of further offence and further unrest and even violence. And that's the whole reason that that event took place where the police officer, the mother and the head teacher were explaining what happened. And that's the fact. And that's an incredibly worrying state of affairs and it's incredibly worrying to see authorities kind of outsource the management of of unrest in that way to kind of a self-appointed unelected community in inverted commas community representatives and it's very worrying when you see a religious figure saying that we go like in the same meeting that this mother is you know pleading her son's case very worrying that a religious figure is saying things like we would die for this book you know which begs the question how is it possible to die for this book without some sort of violent confrontation taking place um but he also said um you know we can't brush this under the carpet and people are calling it a provocation and a desecration and stuff like that which as you've said isn't like an accidental as far as we know incident and obviously this is extremely inflammatory language and you just don't see any of that language challenged by like the authorities, the authority figures in that meeting. Um, in fact, you see them nod along with the language about it. You know, we can't brush this under the carpet. We have to, ma- you know, make sure this kind of thing doesn't happen again. And it's just really, you know, you know, if there was, if there was some, if there was some, some kind of deliberate dabbing during the book to, you know, deliberately offend people, then you can understand why the school might take some action against that in the way that that in the way that that would be the case for any kind of behavioural issue. but So I don't really care so much about that. What I care about is that 
the actions of authorities afterwards, which I just think are such an obviously wrong way of, of handling this entire affair. Yeah, which is actually what I probably sh- should have mentioned. The scandal ha- happened after this incident. Actually, the child was suspended from school, mm. which I can just about understand if you want to su- suspend the pupil while an investigation is carried out. I don't know if that's the proper way usually usually happen. I think mean, that's the way things that might happen in the workplace. I'm not sure that's how it happens in the school, but it might be if you want to see whether this was an intentional kind of damaging of the copy of the Quran or accidental and you want to investigate. And then in the meantime, you suspend the pupil. But this child also received death threats and is now kind of sounds like from what his mum was saying quite traumatized by the incident it's been fascinating to watch the response from people online just be like huh you know just a completely perplexed and a a complete cultural barrier from feeling like they just cannot understand the response and yet that I know You'd stop at someone on the street and say, what's some more serious offence here? And go, well, I think it might be the death threats towards a child. <laughs> might be the most but, but, I mean, so you're, you're right. But you're right. But even if there weren't death threats, event taking place, mm. they do, they do, you know, even if, the, obviously, the death threats are extremely important. We don't, we don't know the nature of them. We don't know if it was in person. We don't know if it was, like, some communication online. We don't know the nature of it. Even if they didn't take place, why is that event why is that response happening it, it is not the business of the police whether a, a a book is damaged whether it's religious or not and i think you're right i think it has been fascinating i i, I imagine i don't want to be uncharitable but i imagine there are conversations between authorities some of the figures involved in wakefield right now which doesn't really understand the blowback against this and the as you said furor and the controversy which is saying you know we were just diffusing it oh these people don't know all the facts but that is that is what I would like quite sarcastically call community engagement brain. Like they're so blinkered by this idea that that community engagement is what should come first, other than like the the overall health of British democracy, which has just been a which is a problem up and down the country. Not with the, not just with these, but it's just it's refusing to see the bigger picture of what's wrong. Because like you said, if you if you grab ten people off the street and and ask them the correct way way to respond respond to this i imagine the only people who would say that this is a good response are the, are the kind of people who work in local councils and, and police um, services and stuff like that it's it's not a it's not a democratically healthy way of engaging with with what's happened um regardless of death threats or not so from your perspective the best way to manage this i presume would be that the school would deal with the incident internally, that the police deal with the death threats, the actual, and investigate those. I understand they have investigated the damaging of the Quran as a a non-crime hate incident. Yeah, which is just a joke. That, that whole system's a joke. But like, was it? <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't sure was actually a thing existed, but if if that is it exists yeah if that is within the and then i got thinking about it i guess well you i guess you could 
in maybe some ways I was, I was trying to think of circumstances in which you could commit a hate crime that wouldn't be another criminal instance such as assault and I was just trying to think yeah, well, but that's why the whole system doesn't make sense. Yeah, I was like, there's, there must be some way this, this exists. But like, it, it, it sounded to me like the way it was phrased in that meeting. It sounded to me like like they were they were kind of throwing the the people who wanted some sort of action to be taken. Like if it was almost like a placation placatory move. I don't know if placatory is even a word, but it was like a, a consolation. Like you know, the the police knew deep down they they really couldn't do anything here. But they were kind of so desperate to defuse the situation that that they that they said, "Oh, we're going to look at this as a non crime, non what is it, non crime hate incident." And it, it, the way it was, the way it was communicated sounded to me like it was a placatory move, like it was to placate the the offended and the outraged. Um, of which you know, it's just I don't really know if this goes on people's records or not, but it's just a it's just a bogus move. Like if, if, if either a crime has taken place or it hasn't. You shouldn't be, you know, throwing people's potential records or like making this a bigger controversy than it is in a mood to placate the offended and the outraged. Yeah, and that, so I was going to say to you, I, I presume school will manage the incident, certainly, and then it's up to, I guess, our elected officials, our actual representatives of the community, to defend. A secular attitude, potentially. So I can feel a discomfort with the reaction similarly to you. I'm unsure what what should have been the correct response. I don't think the, the police should have said, actually, no crime was committed. This is unimportant. But mm. I guess the issue blurs when police officers start becoming community liaison engagement officers. Yeah role spots blending i understand that sort of community representative and that kind of blurs a little bit no i know i don't understand that so why not turn up and say actually sorry these are this is the rules of the game uh in british liberal democracy and just stand by that as uncomfortable as that is you you have to yes yeah you just have to i just think well you know that's a that unfortunately that's an incredibly brave thing to do in that environment, uh, which it is intimidating. And the police officer it is, but they are police officers. Clearly, police officer was that individual was a coward. I just I, I like I I I don't think they um they grasped what they were confronting. So like we could say it was cowardice, but maybe they felt like there wasn't a decision like an internal decision made because they don't really grasp that what was happening and. And I think, you know, the, obviously I'm being charitable there where a lot of people I've seen are not being as charitable towards the police's response. But I just I just know, like you, the way, like kind of these people who are engaged on a community and local level think. And it's it, it's just blinkered. It's just not seeing the bigger picture at all. And I think what what we haven't discussed is is it's born to put this incident in the context of other uh, controversies or what the word that always follows so anything to do with blasphemy is affair, isn't it? Bl- blasphemy affairs. So I think it's important to put it in the context of the protests against the Lady of Heaven film that took place last year, which ended up with the film being pulled from a lot of um, UK cinemas. Then there was the incident with the school teacher in Batley, who is, as far as we know, still in hiding after showing showing pupils a picture of the Prophet Muhammad 
in a discussion about the Charlie Hebdo um, cartoons and the Charlie Hebdo attacks and the discussion on freedom of speech. But then also a few years earlier, the murder of a shopkeeper in Glasgow by uh, a guy from Bradford, Tanvir Ahmed. So the, all of these things are linked. Um, and it's important to put what's happened in Wakefield into that context, which is an increasing kind of zeal or fervor surrounding what what we would, you know, it's obviously a, a, a kind of anglicized and imperfect term, but what we would broadly consider blasphemy, but which in in Islam is, you know, there are various offenses that you would constitute blasphemy that might not be called blasphemy. So actually, I think that's important for institutions to understand that, whether it's a school or a cinema chain or a police, is you might find yourself at the center of what is a blasphemy affair and you might never hear the word blasphemy because it's not like it's not the specifics of what what you know what might be understood in Islam as blasphemy. Like those, there's not a term that's used, so um, they might not realize they were in the middle of a blasphemy affair, but that is what they were in the middle of. I guess we have a a political culture, a civic culture, or just a culture in this country, in that our instincts are often to look after. The institution that we represent so if you are a school your attitude will be okay how can we protect the school so if you're the head teacher i don't want to be drawn into this and have the mob go after me and i want to protect yeah institution if you're a local councillor okay how can i placate this mob and sort of brush it not brush it under the carpet, but just do what I have to do. And the local police officer will go and probably say, I'll nod along and I'll look apologetic and say that we are investigating. We will do everything in our power to investigate and ensure this doesn't happen again. Communication is really important. And they kind of go through the motions as a way to just sort of protect themselves, which is that's the focus. The focus isn't on wider trends and wider impacts of placating this culture and the culture i've seen you write a few articles on this incident and what really struck me was this is a particular culture that comes from a of a very hardline attitude to blasphemy for want of a better term it comes from a particular fundamentalist political culture in Pakistan and yeah. that obviously most lay people would have comprehend that I've seen very educated very in tuned writers on the tour saying this was a, a mob of Islamists but that's incorrect um, could you outline where this reaction to this scuffing of the Quran has come from yeah place it within its kind of political tradition and how it's been exported over here yeah so so i did i i wrote for the new statesman kind of drawing a distinction between islamists and what's happening here um and i got called out on it quite a few times because people were saying how is it not islamists uh, i don't I, I and some people their their criticism of that came from a legit place and some people just didn't understand the distinction i was trying to make but when i said that it's not necessarily isn't this what i meant was making it very distinct from the kind of i first of all like jihadist terror threat is completely different to that but then second of all the kind of the the like non-violent islamist scene that we might see 
you know, making it distinct from the revolutionary political program of organizations like the Muslim Brotherhood, Jamati Islami, their South Asian equivalent, or Hizbut Tahrir, for example. And then obviously you've got the violent offshoots of Islamism like Al Qaeda and uh, and ISIS. Um, and it doesn't it doesn't come from those traditions. And that's not to say that those movements, those political movements, and all of their offshoots don't care about blasphemy because they do. Like we've seen that with the Charlie Hebdo attack, which was an Al Qaeda attack, with the murder of Samuel Paty in France, was which was done by an ISIS supporter. Um, you know, bl- blasphemy is a motivating issue, and it, as we've seen, it was a motivating. Um, concern for Shia Islamism as well with the original fatwa against Salman Rushdie. Um, so it is a concern for various denominations and sects of Islam. But this particular phenomenon is has come from, and I'm not going to for a second pretend to be an expert on this, but maybe I can give a, a kind of lay briefing on it. Um, the this particular phenomenon comes from uh, Barelvism, which is a like a, a sect of Islam, which um, largely comes from uh, largely based in Pakistan. Most Barelvi Muslims are in Pakistan, but also a, a very large proportion of British Muslims would um, come from Barelvi school of, uh, of Islam. Um, so, what Barelvis over the over the years have been no fans of of. Islamists of this type of like Muslim Brotherhood, um, Jamaat Islami, like they're they're critical of that. They've been very critical of other other sects like Diabandis and uh, Salafis as well. Very very critical of that, and and the feelings mutual. Like um, the more hardcore jihadist uh, movements would cons- probably consider um, Barelvis to be heretics as well. So this is where it gets really messy and really complicated, and that's why it's no surprise that it's kind of difficult to grasp for both both state and civil society. But what's happened within Barelvism in recent years is, and, um, and because of Barelvism, Barelvism is a form of Sufism, which has largely been seen as like a very kind of peace-loving sect and, you know, a, a big ideological distance between them and jihadists, which is which is correct. Um, but there's been a bit of what Rashad Ali, my friend, and uh, who works for the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, has, has called like a theological race to the bottom over issues of blasphemy so there's been a subculture emerge in Barelvism in Pakistan which is um, which is even taken to accusing other sects even very quite conservative and hardline sects of Islam of not sufficiently respecting or loving the Prophet Muhammad um, so it's it's basically proving their bona fides in, in loving the Prophet Muhammad but that also means that getting more and more animated and more and more agitated over insults to the Prophet Muhammad, which is something called Gustaki Irazul. I've probably butchered the pronunciation there, but that's a that's what we might understand as a blasphemy offense, insulting the Prophet, which is, you know, a charge punishable by death. And I think the most famous incidents that have come onto the like the UK's radar on on these developments are the Christian woman Asia Bibi, who was sentenced to death in Pakistan um, for alleged blasphemy, um, that was that was again to do with Pakistan's blasphemy laws, but it was also to do with kind of this political moment, this fervor that blasphemy is is animating and agitating at the moment. Um, what some more fallout from Asia, Asia Bibi's case was um, the governor of Punjab, Salman Tazir, actually defended Asia Bibi and suggested a relaxation of. Pakistan's blasphemy laws. So he never actually blasphemed himself. Um, he just suggested um, a relaxation of the laws and a defense of Asia Bibi, who is alleged to have blasphemed. Um, that in itself was enough for some people to, to, 
you know, consider him an apostate now. So his own bodyguard murdered him. Um, Mumtaz Kadri shot him like 11 or 12 times, I think. And overnight, you know, um, Kadri was venerated and celebrated by thousands and thousands of people and Salman Tazir's murder was, was celebrated, even though, like I said, he'd never actually done anything approaching blasphemy or insulting the prophet himself. Um, and there, there have been the emergence since then of like far-right political parties and movements in Pakistan which venerates Mumtaz Kadri, um, the assassin of the governor of Punjab. And some of that has seeped into the United Kingdom. And some of the, some of the pr- preachers, the scholars that venerate Mumtaz Kadri come and visit the United Kingdom to speak and to um, do fundraising trips and things like that. Um, and, you know, there's all sorts of this TV channels which are broadcast in the United Kingdom, radio stations, WhatsApp groups, Facebook pages and stuff like that, which have helped to transport some of that blasphemy further into the United Kingdom. The murder of um, Assad Shah would lionize Kadri as well. Yeah, he was a big fan. He was an admirer of uh, Muntaz Kadri. Yeah, well, just for background for listeners. So 2016, a guy in Bradford got into his car and drove for, what is it, four, four and a half hours up to Glasgow and he ferociously stomped and stabbed a shopkeeper to death, Assad Shah, who was... Um, he was an Ahmadi Muslim, so I think I think the perception was that this was about sectarianism because mm. Ahmadis are deemed, you know, um, not not to be yeah heretics, not to be true Muslims um, by uh, well a lot of mainstream Islam uh, Sunni Muslims, to be honest. So it was a little bit about sectarianism, but it was also because the shopkeeper Assad Shah was a bit of an eccentric, as far as I can gather, and posted videos on YouTube where he claimed to be a prophet. Which, if you believe in the finality of the Prophet Muhammad, that is obviously an extremely blasphemous move. Um, so Tanvir Ahmed took it into his own hands to go and murder this guy in twenty in March twenty sixteen in Glasgow, and he was an admirer of Muntaz Kadri, the the assassin of the governor of Punjab, um, to the point where I think while Tanvir Ahmed has been in prison, he's actually been in contact with some family members of Muntaz Kadri. But also to the point where some of those far-right political movements in Pakistan that I mentioned, they actually lionize and venerate Tanvir Ahmed, the Bradfordian murderer as well, even though he's you know, thousands and thousands of miles away in the United Kingdom, and you would think that that kind of thing doesn't come onto their radar, but it does. So there, you know, you I've seen posters where Mumtaz Kadri, Salman Tazir's assassin, and Tanvir Ahmed from Bradford are on the same poster, um, you know, you know, venerating these guys for their for their actions, like avenging the prophet. It's quite a um, it's quite a dark thing to suggest. I will go ahead and suggest it anyway. It feels as if someone will have to. Actually, someone has already died. Um, well, it probably needs a white teacher, perhaps, to die for. British state or British civic life to grasp the scale of the issue. Mm. It took until did it take until Samuel Samuel Party's beheading in France, the teacher who showed the image of the Prophet Muhammad. That felt like a watershed moment. Um but is that would you say that's the case? Or perhaps not, because France does have a distinct 
political secular culture that is different to ours and that attitude to these this instance is different to ours could we follow france's path or actually do we have distinct political cultures i mean we deal with these issues well i i hope what you said there isn't kind of dis- dishonestly um interpret like misinterpreted um about you know somebody else dying because that is actually the the way that unfortunately some of these things tend to work is that there is an interest in them um until somebody is killed and unfortunately yeah like like you said i think it's like it, it, it's kind of irks me and it's a bit ironic that like you know this could be perceived as like an uncomfortable conversation for for me and you to have and like people I'm not saying they have or or will, but like there's always it always comes with a risk of being accused of being racist or Islamophobic or something like that. Um, but but if anything, like us having this conversation, we're the ones who are who are concerned by the murder of a of a Pakistan like so a Pakistani descent Muslim in Glasgow, whereas of that for for most of mainstream society seems to have been completely ignored. Um, so. <laughs> So there is that, um, but yeah, I, I, it does take an attack or a murder for suddenly some sort of action to be taken on this stuff. But then also, also, I mean, we've also had really horrific attacks in the United Kingdom, including, I mean, the Manchester Arena inquiry came out the other day when we we're speaking. Um, I don't really think these things have changed much. So um, is it something that we just continue to suffer and tolerate potentially um what happened in france i think what happened in france after samuel patty's murder um was not necessarily the watershed moment that it appeared to be Mm. in the united kingdom um and like the anglophone press generally because nobody really cared or was paying attention to what france was doing to like tackle its kind of islamist seeing um it's islamist infrastructure for one of a better word there were already measures in place there was already a law that had been announced over a year i think before the murder of samuel patty so what happened was suddenly after samuel patty's murder there was a huge amount of attention on what the french state was doing and a huge amount of controversy as well because it, because it is a it is quite alien to the anglo-american political culture i think like that the way the French state handled it and things like lessity, the you know, state secularism, um, which is very, very alien. It's a different system, it's a different political culture, a different political tradition. But then what the things that happened after Patty maybe were accelerated by the French state, but the but the political will to tackle it was already there and already legally was underway, if that makes sense. The legal machinations were already underway. And it is interesting, I think, like, obviously France has a written constitution. It has, you know, this notion of La République and protecting the integrity of La République. And, you know, we just don't have that in the United Kingdom or the United States either. Um, so it, I'm not sure to what extent what France has done could be replicated. But there are there are, but there are very basic things. Uh, sorry, I'm giving you a long-winded answer here, but there are some basic things that could help to curb curb this in the United Kingdom, which really aren't taking place. 
my next question is going to be what steps have the French government taken? I understand there's breaking up or non-violent list organizations is, is one of them. But what other steps were they are they taking and what steps could we take immediately that might be not as not as bold, not as drastic as that, but mm. help tackle some of the issues. Yeah, I mean, I, I spoke in an event yesterday about whether, like, and one of the questions was about whether we need, like, a new counter-extremism strategy to, like, deal with extremism which falls short of, um, you know, uh, of terrorism, of political violence. Um, I'm, I'm extremely skeptical of something like that. If it, me- if it just means more, like, funded civil society organizations going out and doing workshops on British values or some, you know, or how to be, how to not be an extremist and stuff like that. I don't want any more of that. I don't think that stuff is useful, but like some basic due diligence on like visiting preachers, for example, from Pakistan, like if they're, you know, if they're somebody who's venerated uh, a religious assassin like Muntaz Kadri, are they, you know, I, I, this kind of stuff makes me a bit uncomfortable, but if we're banning um, you know, Lauren Southern, a Canadian right-wing activist, or we're banning Tyler, the creator, the rapper, was banned from entering the United Kingdom, um, believe it or not, under the uh, using the same kind of measures that were basically introduced to combat, like, Gulf state preachers coming. Tyler, the creator, was banned for basically a stage persona. But yet, preachers can visit who, you know, it doesn't take much digging, looking at their Facebook page, for example, where they've actually put things up in support of Montez Kadri, the assassin. Um, you know, is that, if we're going to use it against Lawrence Southern and Tyler, the creator, should we be using those kind of measures against visit preachers um, as well? I would argue it's at least something to look at. Um, there's also things like like the, the Charity Commission really doesn't have a lot of teeth. Um, you know, a lot of these organizations are registered charities and like one organization... I, during the Batley school teacher controversy, put out a, a public letter in which they named the teacher, and also compared it to a genocide. They compared it to the persecution of um, of Muslims in Myanmar. I, I go back and get the exact wording, but this was this is a playbook that we've seen before, like the comparison of blasphemous, allegedly blasphemous acts to real world violence and real world ge- real world, excuse me, genocide. There's something Anwar al-Waki did, the Al-Qaeda ideologue, it's something Bin Laden did, it's something the, the preacher who helped to escalate the Samuel Patti controversy did. You know, but what action was the Charity Commission taking against that? Because that needs to be recognised for what it is, which is a massive escalation and in inflammation of the, of the situation. So there's all sorts of steps like that. And I mean, the Charity Commission in terms of, you know, there was a bit of, a, there was a bit of stronger action against organ, like charities that were supporting some Islamist groups in Syria when the Syrian civil war was was kicking off, you know, like organizing aid convoys and things like that. Aid couldn't aid convoys and in inverted commas. But but you know that like I said, there was a bit of action while that was happening, but but you know, many of those charities still exist and are able to operate as charities. So there are just some I I just think there are some basic steps that just involve getting the fundamentals of preserving British liberal democracy right which can come well before you know any like counter-extremism strategy or new law or something like that um and also they involve like we like we spoke about right at the beginning about whether 
whether it's appropriate for police forces to be doing what they did after the Wakefield controversy or, or a local council. I would say obviously not. And there need to be consequences for handling this so wrong. But there also needs to be guidance from central government about this issue, um, which, you know, to be fair, we're just getting, we're just starting to understand, we're just starting to get a handle on it. But we need to urgently get a handle on it and urgently communicate to these institutions. Like I said before, you might find yourself at the center of what is a blasphemy controversy without actually realizing it. And it's because of X, Y, and Z, like I said before, all the dynamics that we've been discussing. I know this, the kind of start of this podcast has been quite pessimistic or <laughs> more negative. However, it's grim. I do think there has been some progress made in about 10 years, up from in the last decade or so. I think the last decade or last 13 years have been the years where I've been politically aware, aware and politically active. I remember 10 years ago going to Goldsmiths University, which I kind of lived next door to essentially, where there was a conference, an anti-prevent conference. And it was just like a, a churning over of the myths around pre prevent and the concept of prevent was state-sanctioned observation and persecution against Muslim community. That was the, that was the narrative. And this wasn't just a narrative that was pushed by Islamist groups or far left groups who were sympathetic to their revolutionary fervor. It was kind of broadly accepted on the kind of guardian center left that prevent was a bad authoritarian thing that shouldn't be trusted. There was heavy, heavy skepticism towards it. There has been a journey with the prevent strategy where I think now it's broadly accepted as a good thing across the political mainstream and has noble ideals. I think part of this journey is because of the emphasis that the prevent strategy has placed on also tackling the far right, the liberal left, across the political spectrum it's much more comfortable talking about tackling and I will use these terms and this language explicitly preventing vulnerable young people falling into the arms of far right groups and when it's expressed in those terms you actually you know we have a responsibility as local councillors, as local politicians, as kind of left-leaning activists to safeguard vulnerable young people from falling into the far right. And that narrative has actually helped rehabilitate Prevent and people have realised actually. And that's how I viewed Prevent always in those terms, as a safeguarding measure that helps usually vulnerable people um, from falling into ideologies that are really dangerous and really damaging and that I oppose um, because they are extreme and are a threat to our democracy. However, I've used language which is really, really commonplace and language that I know mm. you would find really problematic. I've used falling into, for example. I, I've used 
I've stressed the vulnerability mm, yeah. of those who fall into extremism. And I understand mm -hmm. this framing of radicalization and the framing of the prevent strategy is really damaging. I would love you to tell the listeners exactly why, because I think it's really important to quite nuanced points that you are often trying to make around the prevent strategy and it's what it's good for and what its flaws are. Oh, I'm glad you didn't call me a broken record on it because I'm definitely a broken record. Um, yeah, um, like I, I, I get it, and I get I get all the reasons that you just said. Like that, that kind of it, it goes back to the the strategy's inception, which is you know it needed a mechanism for delivery for delivering like a non kind of securitized, non coercive arm of a counterterrorism strategy. In it, the mechanism for delivery was to place it alongside existing safeguarding mechanisms for like other social ills, whether that's like drugs, gangs, domestic violence, and stuff like that. And you're right. I think you know adopting the language of safeguarding and adopting the language of vulnerabilities as a, a was necessary to do that, but B has also helped to secure support and buy-in from you know frontline professionals and volunteers and stuff like that who ordinarily would probably object to counterterrorism encroaching on their day job. Um, so, uh, in some ways it's been sincere, in some ways it's actually been a little bit cynical, um, I might say, but I just think having said that I get it and I get the need to frame it like that and why it's been framed like that, I just think it's gone so far. It's gone way too far and it's seeped into broader counterterrorism efforts and like broader terrorism discourse. And I, it's just a bit of a chicken and egg. I don't know. I don't know if there's something broader in our culture which is tempted to view, you know, people people who become terrorists as like vulnerable or somehow wronged by wider society, whether that's like discrimination or socioeconomic marginalization and stuff like that. I think there might be something much broader and deeper in our culture which wants to do that rather than just laying all the blame at, you know, prevent or CVE, for example's um, doorstep. But I think since since the inception, I think like it's really not uncommon to hear practitioners and police officers talk about all radicalization as though it's like a form of grooming, like a, a word which is usually reserved for sexual exploitation. You know, and it implies absolutely no decision making, no agency whatsoever on the part of the person who joins the terrorist or the extremist group. I think that those cases do exist, and I think maybe there's a there's a good you know, maybe Prevent has been doing a good job of of intervening where people have been genuinely, you know, vulnerable or have various sources of instability in their lives and and were maybe targeted for recruitment or were maybe um, you know, just researching things themselves and just getting more and more uh going further and further down the rabbit hole. But that that does not explain the broader terrorist movement movements, plural, in that have affected the United Kingdom. You know, to say that about about 900 from Britain, maybe more, joined uh, militant groups in Syria, about 6,000-odd from around Western Europe. Um, to say that that was a movement of, like, vulnerable, naive individuals is just so wrong. I don't know where to begin. And it just removes all of the agency from those individuals. And, like, terrorism is not not an intellectual failing. It's a moral failing. You know, many of these people are are perfectly coherent, perfectly stable, perfectly confident, 
um, in their convictions um, and do not fit the bill of what we might understand as vulnerable in kind of local authority speak um, or local services speak. And it's important to understand that, isn't it? And it's important to not draw conclusions about wider terrorist movements based on the strategy that we have to deliver. And that's what we've done. And it's unfortunate because it, an urgent problem, for example, for Britain and for Western Europe is this question of de-radicalization, whether it's possible to de-radicalize people who are already radical with the number of returnees from ISIS, with the number of people in prison on terrorism offenses who are probably going to get be getting out over the next few years. It is an urgent question whether that, like they can be de-radicalized in inverted commas. But if we've got a really flawed understanding of radicalization, that doesn't bode well for our capacity to de-radicalize um if that's even possible um but also i think the most i know i've used the word egregious already and probably twice in this conversation but the most egregious part for me is that now now that they're stranded and captured in northern syria some of the people from western europe and i'm not just talking about shamima begum they are and like she's not the only one but but some of the people who voluntarily joined isis and now like playing back our own radicalization discourse to us for, in a kind of plea for sympathy. So they're saying they were brainwashed, they were manipulated, they were groomed, they didn't know what they were doing and stuff like that. And this is just massively at odds with their actual, um, if you, the details that we have, their actual decision to join ISIS. And in many cases, you can actually look at some of their social media output from their first couple of years in the caliphate in inverted commas. Uh, and they certainly weren't vulnerable and naive they were celebrating attacks celebrating beheadings celebrating uh the genocide of Yazidis. so it's just quite objectionable to see some of the people who joined a group which is, was committing some of the worst atrocities of the 21st century um now claiming that they never knew what they were doing all along and they were brainwashed and manipulated um but they're you know where did they get that from they got that from us they got that from our own discourse would it be right to say that actually the original framing helped generate political buy-in within our political culture that is quite paternalistic mm. i think and also it's much easier for someone who is a liberal democrat in a, a small l small d worldview mm. to understand someone vulnerable being groomed and who often we talk about in similar in, in crime fell into a life of crime because of their circumstances yes. or fell in with the wrong crowd fell in with the wrong crowd is easier to accept than accepting someone said no i was educated i am completely clear on what i want to do and how to achieve it and I thought incredibly deeply about this, and I think I'm on the right side of history. And I think that's another point that many people don't quite grasp. There's a view that people, individuals are groomed into evil when actually those who are carrying out these attacks or joining ISIS, they don't see themselves as evil. They see themselves no, that's as absolutely an right. incredibly clear worldview that they've thought incredibly deeply about. Um, and they were on the the side of side of God, the wrong side to hell, and it's and it's a completely it's they are they completely and utterly feel that they're doing the right thing and a noble thing and a good thing, and I don't think that's yeah. also something. That's really yeah, they're not like a Joker from Batman. Like they're not just you know just doing evil for the sake of it with an evil cackle. 
you're right. You're absolutely right. It's it's they see what they're doing as a moral necessity, like it's it's a moral emergency to to do what they're doing. And also, there is a an, a strand as well. You've spoken about a lot of jihadists and Islamists in particular who see this the conflict, the conflict of bringing about the caliphate as hundred a hundred year struggle. So this isn't something that will be achieved tomorrow, but something that is a lifelong endeavor. And and also and I just feel like that isn't quite understood as well. Yeah, and that's why it's really important also not to we're obviously obviously not at the same threat level as say between twenty fourteen to seventeen, for example. Um, we're not having the same spate of attacks across Western Europe committed by ISIS or any other jihadist outfit. But that's why it's really important not to like rest on our laurels now and just, you know, put the cue on the rack for sorry, I'm using way too many metaphors, but just assume assume some new there's like a ra- a finite amount of radical energy in society and it's gonna become like the next problem is gonna be like the far right or incels or something like that. They do think in generations they don't the the, move, the movement puts a lot of time and energy into um into debate and study and you know intellectual pursuit we might not think it's intellectual because we think of it as like bloodthirsty and and all of that but they're you know they're not going to rush into the next move and if the movement determines now that you know launching mass casualty attacks is not necessarily in their interest which is i think where the movement is at the moment it, do, it doesn't it doesn't not exist i just don't think that they're rushing into launching mass casualty attacks against civilians then they're not going to do that they're going to wait out and find and figure out how to recalibrate yes absolutely i think not only has there been a changing attitude towards counter extremism measures like prevent cause of the communications from prevent stressing their fight against the far right people just naturally seem not saying naturally but just seemingly more comfortable in accepting it's legitimate and something that we should all care about and all should fight and um, but also i think there has been a change in the british public's attitude due to the number of horrific murderous attacks close by either in britain or just across the channel in the last decade it hardens people's stance to realize actually this is something we really need to combat and like the sheer scale and the sheer visceral nature of the horror of isis as well also on an impact and i've heard you talk about definitely yeah some jihadists and islamist groups have said actually let's restock and think about a long a longer term strategy but that almost prevents people waking up to what the potential outcome could be. Does that make sense? Mm. What the actual impact yeah. and outcome of living on, yeah. in the caliphate would actually mean for minorities? Well, it's, it's it, the, the jihadist, like the, let's call it the Salafi jihadist movement, because the Salafi part's really important there. Um, Salafi, like the Salafi movement being the, Salaf means like the, the ancestors or the, like the first companions uh, of Muhammad, and obviously they tried to like emulate their example. You know, and the Salafi Jihadist movement is a kind of blending of that that movement with you know, a, a kind of offensive um, militant 
movement transformed into a global jihadist movement by Bin Laden. Um, but it's it's the what we might call the Salafi jihadist movement has never been primarily a terrorist movement, and that the issue of terrorism has actually always been kind of controversial. Like even even when Bin Laden was strategizing, um, you know, the idea of attacking the United States was really not popular with um, a lot of his comrades from the from the Soviet Afghan war and then so in in a way that kind of mass casualty terror attack strategy against the United States and its allies was a bit of an outlier or an aberration in the history of the movement um there's much more energy has been expended on flying overseas for example to establish sharia where possible um or you know just proselytizing at home um and i think the where when people joined ISIS, they often came from already existing kind of extremist milieus and circles in Europe, where people had been, well, I call it living the fantasy, like living the Salafi fantasy for years and years prior to move, like prior to joining ISIS territory. I think Bernard Ruggio is a French scholar. Said I might be messing up the quote, but he said something like they were already living in an imagined caliphate in the West but that was transformed into reality by ISIS. So the obvious answer was to go and join it. Um, so I think, you know, uh, and ISIS's strategy was was in a way kind of counterproductive. They talked about eliminating the grey zone a lot, which was the grey zone of coexistence. But I think what they actually did was just showed just how small the constituency for mass murder, like we saw at Manchester Arena or the Bataclan actually was. And it also helped, yeah, helped to accelerate the demise of the caliphate because it helped to, um, you know, defend the resolve of European and Western states um, to launch airstrikes and support other actors on the ground and things like that. So, in a way, it was counterproductive. Um, so, I think there has there are discussions within the circles right now, but though these discussions have been going on for decades as well. There will be a faction emerge which does not, which is still committed to the ideology, but which is not committed to mass casualty terror attacks against civilians um so how we respond to that is a massive question i'm just wondering how individuals in public life should treat islamism and jihadism because while obviously jihadism the direct threat to life is incredibly frightening and should be a priority when it comes to our national psyche of what to what to tackle what to combat i do sometimes think about there should be more reflection on what would life be like in a canisate if you are a liberal, democrat-minded individual that has your values and you are not a Muslim, your place in society would be one of the second-class citizen with higher taxes due to your kind of religious beliefs or non-religious beliefs, and you would not have the freedoms that you kind of take for granted right now. I think there is in a national psyche an understanding or what impact it would have if, for example, the BMP were in power and 
that is kind of well understood and the nuances of the difference between the national action who will carry out violent attacks to achieve their political ends uh, likes of the BNP who will try and achieve their political goals through, through democratic means um, while they are understood they are still seen as part of the same ideology that one should be very fearful of yeah. and extremely critical of. Though they are completely different ideologies in some way, to help a lay person on the street understand Islamism, should they frame, should they view it should they understand what the democratic impact would be and view it as a far-right ideology? Or would that just be incorrect? And I'm talking just for a lay person who's the yeah, yeah. to help them process and compute how the movement should be treated by someone of the political mainstream. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I think there's quite a strong case for calling... Islamist groups, far right movements. Um, I couldn't go into the disability, but I think um, two scholars of the far right or the radical right, um, Jack and Bell and Tamir Baron, who actually wrote a book um, about alarmism, about the radical right and the extreme right. Um, but in that book, they noted how, you know, for all the scholars and centers and NGOs that claim to tackle the far right, like none of them seem to touch Islamism. There's a whole chapter on why they, they outline that actually Islamism is a far right ideology. But one of the problems in in Britain and like other Western European countries is you don't have you don't have openly Islamist political parties necessarily. You have you have organisations, charities, uh, religious institutions, all sorts of um, NGOs, things like that that exist in the ideological orbit of Islamist groups and movements. Um, but they, you know, they're not op- they're not open about their political program if that makes sense they will or even if I was going to say they'll disguise it sometimes they'll disguise their political program with other causes but sometimes their political program is actually genuinely secondary so they're they're, they're first there might be an Islamist group which is genuinely sincerely engaged in humanitarian work if that makes sense they just happen to also be Islamists so I think that's a massive challenge is that it's very difficult to explain why and which groups might actually exist in that ideological, even sometimes even financial orbit, not just, you know, the, the links might actually be operational between them and, you know, in Islamist groups in the Middle East, for example. It's very difficult to explain that. And it's very, very difficult for journalists to report on it as well because of lawfare, basically. Mm. Um, and, you know, even if they think that they will lose, a lot of these groups will not hesitate to, to sue somebody who reports various links to this that and the other or calls them islamist in public yes and and uh, something else we've we've discussed before for example you might have a islamist preacher who welcomes islamist groups to their mosque to house political meetings but at the same time does seemingly on the surface at least really healthy interfaith work and really, or really, really healthy charity work, and the the complexity here is that one, the as you said, the charity work might be very beneficial 
and completely sincere. Similarly, charity work and the interfaith work might be part of a generational struggle to get religion, um, get political legitimacy within the British political sphere to further their end goals. And both those things can be the case at once. And that makes it incredibly challenging for anyone to deal with, um, let alone people with incredibly busy lives, even local councillors or local MPs. You've got 101 things to deal with. Why are they going to really investigate this? It's just another added layer to the minefield of dealing with these issues. But I think the best way that it can be handled is just being aware of those issues and not being politically naive, just being aware of the wider issues. Yeah. Like engagement is possible and it it may sometimes be necessary, particularly for police um, forces. But just go into it with eyes open and don't, you know, I think it's important not to like dismiss when people raise concerns, not to dismiss it, not to call someone raising concerns an Islamophobe in particular, but also to like apply the same yardstick that you would if it was if it was a church, for example. If somebody comes to you and you know this person has said X in the past, and I like I don't I don't like that that kind of you know archaeological digging that's going on uh, like archaeological offense taking that is going on in like wider society you know going back to what somebody has said 10 years ago using against them today i don't like that but you know so i'm not necessarily talking about that but like i'm certain police wouldn't engage with like a a church or a christian preacher who had said certain things that you know sometimes the case for muslim preachers so it's about not 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 treating them as others it's not it's about is about treating them with the same responsibilities and the same things that you would demand from anyone else in in society. Um, and like I said, if, if if engagement is even necessary, just know what it's for and don't don't absolve them of that record, which is sometimes what you see in with police, which is that they consider that relationship necessary for their work locally. Fair enough. Okay, let let's you you've made your decision. But then let's not, you know, whitewash them and and defend them to the hill where you don't need to, if that makes sense. Which is sometimes what you see. You will see, no, 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 they're a great partner. They've done X, Y, and Z. Like you, you don't need to do that. It's possible to have the relationship without laundering their yeah. Beliefs. And I, I've I've experienced that directly as Islamist speakers being welcome to the Literary Islamic Center and me kind of raising this as a issue with colleagues and colleagues just saying whoa 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 don't need like that's it's even it's just offensive to even kind of raise that because it might have done such a good community and it's like that's that's not a healthy response that dismissive nature a healthy one okay we'll take a look at this and then weigh up on balance whether the continued relationship with the political representatives and imam is healthy and positive on balance for simulations yeah. in the long term that's a kind of healthy approach but i won't dig into that rather than, rather than just like dismissing the concerns yeah, or well, and, just, and actually you're, you're and just being like actually just saying even even raising these concerns is, is kind of somehow offensive 
Um, but one issue I did really want to chat to you, and I know we've been speaking a while, was the the review of the pre- prevent strategy that's just been published. Oh. Also mentioned, which was quite dark. I found it darkly funny. I understand um, that some civil society groups that were funded by prevent were essentially publishing material that supported the Taliban, which um, which is wow. one issue. I kind of, I found it darkly humorous in, in a way. But also, so your comments on that would be quite interesting and in how that even came about as an expert, expert in the field, as an ex-prevent practitioner yourself. Secondly, um, the that's correct right you were a prevent officer in a in a previous life um Whoa. and then secondly the report highlights the kind of ever expanding understanding of the far right you involve what a kind of daily mail adjacent uncomfortable dodgy uncle talking points and yes. and that that was really kind of eye-opening and Again, how how did this happen, and how the the understanding of Islamism is incredibly narrow under Prevent, but the understanding of the far right can expand into Andrew Tate's kind of nonsense. Mm. That is, or even far less controversial yeah, figure, which, um, which is which is nowhere near the kind of national action, for example. The prevent strategy is about directly tackling violent incidents or the likelihood of violent incidents as well. It's not about general stopping people from having very bad opinions. But yeah, you'll be yeah outline more. Of that. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't mean to sound, like this is going to sound like a cop out and a bit cowardly, but I don't know the specific details of what went on with the story that was in the press about the 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 Taliban. Well, the like the group that had expressed support for the Taliban that got prevent funding. Um, I think there were one or two other dodgy things that they'd done and said. Um, a safe thing it's always to 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 often assume, not always assume, often assume, is that whatever story makes it to the press about a potential Islamist group, um, and I'm not I'm not talking about this specific example necessarily, but in general. Um, a safe thing to assume is that whatever has made it to the press, the reality is much worse, and there is much more going on, because whatever's made it to the press is probably like the most solid thing that they know that they can't be sued on, because that's the modus operandi whenever things, these things are reported, groups sue. Um, so it's that'll be the most watertight, solid thing that they can possibly say, and it's probably been watered down. Um, so it's probably... Yeah, I'd- I'm sorry, I just thought you were going to say the exact opposite. I thought you were going to say something like, when it makes a press, take it with a pinch of salt. It's probably the most egregious example that as as an error was made. What you said is exactly the opposite. Which, <laughs> well, there might shows be how naive I, shows how naive I am. And I think that's the overarching um, theme of this podcast is I'm probably in the um, outside of the kind of expert practitioner world up there in the top five percent maybe most in tune and clued up on these things but i'm still incredibly naive about what goes on well bit well just being an like being a self-proclaimed expert or a practitioner doesn't necessarily infer knowledge on this like this is well i mean this is one of the prevent reviews problems is that 
actually the knowledge of this like scene in Britain is just non-existent. But yeah, like well, look, there will be cases which where there's been erroneous reporting or mistakes made and stuff like that. Of course, there will be, and and there might even be cases where it's just there where there might be a sniff of bigotry uh, motivating the the reporting. But there are also cases certainly where where editors steer well clear of reporting on Islamist groups in the UK because it's not worth the risk to them. And even if they win the eventual court battle, like the costs incurred and the the labor and stuff like that, they don't they just really don't want to report on it. There is not many editors that want to want to touch this stuff at the moment. So if it does make it to the press, it's safe to assume that that is the most watertight thing that they could report on. And there is there probably is much worse and that's just the bit that's come to the surface. Having said that, yeah, I don't know specifically about that case, but but the, the, my answer is linked to both questions, which is there's an awful, like, when we say Prevent is doing X or Prevent is not doing Y, there's like, it's important to say what we mean here. Like, there's obviously the piece of paper, which is the Prevent strategy, then there's the ministers, which dictate the strategy and policy. And then there's the civil servants who are responsible for its implementation. Then there are like local authorities, police, civil society groups, some of them funded, some of them not. Then there are think tanks, NGOs. There's a sector, let's call it the prevent sector. And what what is on that piece of paper or what gets decided by a minister and what gets delivered in a local community setting can be, there's a lot of distance, there's a lot of layers between them. So what actually gets delivered, badged as prevent or got under the guise of prevent could be very, very different to what is decided by a minister or in the home office, if that makes sense. So it's just important to be aware of that, like how how devolved delivery of it is. It really is so devolved. There is so it is so on a local done on a local basis, and that's how some of those mistakes when it comes to engagement on funding might take place. Is that um, and you know it, it's kind of a in many ways a strong point that it is the management of it is so devolved because it can be implemented in a to suit the context of the local area but it also means that these things can happen that's mm. just yeah that's just something to be aware of yeah um, and uh, that, that, does that impact the second part of the question as because it is so devolved you might get certain local authorities leaning more heavily into or local or schools more heavily leaning into uh little charlie's just describing himself as an incel you know, this is going to sound like a partisan point, but it's not, and I don't mean it to be. But like, it's no secret that the majority of people who work in community groups and charities and schools and local authorities are probably on the left of the political spectrum, right? So, I think just just imagine if everybody worked in a school, everybody worked in a charity, everybody worked in these different civil society groups was a conservative. Like, how expansive they might define left wing extremism, like that. <laughs> like, it's just it's just yeah. the same effect. It's just you know if. if it's just things like groupthink and uh, and yeah, all, the, all of these different dynamics and political bias and things like that. Then there are some what I would call just like political actors working in uh, like think tanks and NGOs and stuff like that who help to set the policy and help to not not sorry they help to set the discourse which obviously influ- influences the policy and the practice. And some of them there is like a pretty blatant attempt I think to position like right wing. Or populist political movements are somehow close to terroristic in a in a in an effort to delegitimize and vilify them um, and remove them from the public square. It's mainly happening in America, but it's it's happened in the it happens in the UK as well. So yeah, there is this like uh, as an example I've used a couple of times now, but it's only an example. 
output of a broader sentiment. But you know, I've I've sat in presentations where we on you know, bearing my preventers a counterterrorism strategy. I've sat in presentations where like Daily Mail headlines and front pages have been shown as though by like to be the Islamic State propaganda magazine. Um and the, like the logic for do for doing that is that, you know, this radicalization of, you know, far right people is happening in the mainstream and it's mainstream figures and media that are actually responsible for it. Which is like extremely flimsy case, I think, um, to make. And it's also it's also damage it's also just damaging for like our national debate and democracy to to kind of delegitimize you know political opinions in that way so and there's also this thing like anybody any kind of right-wing figures that have talked about immigration policy for example they get they might find themselves accused of mainstreaming the great replacement um, conspiracy theory which is the idea that like white native europeans are being deliberately replaced by migrants from um you know Africa and Asia and the Middle East and things like that. So in in the mo- in the crudest possible way of explaining it, but but you know I've I've seen that and I've seen presentations where people you know there's, there's a long way between talking about immigration policy and advocating the Great Replacement Theory and the links between the two are, are often extremely tenuous. But you know but you I've sat at a conference where Douglas Murray or conservative kind of YouTubers that are in America that have next to no following or presence in the United Kingdom, for example, will be shown on a slide. And it's just uh, it's just kind of outrageous. Like the the idea that Douglas Murray has, has ever advocated anything approaching violence, even if you find him odious and unpleasant and you don't like his views one bit, we need to we need to be disciplined about what we're calling terroristic here. There seems to be a couple of lessons from from our, our chat that and and the well one of them from the French strategy review is that it's a kind of a noble the review says it's a, no, a noble cause but needs to stay within its narrow remit of tackling terroristic behaviors and preventing terror attacks and that it needs to have a kind of laser focus on that we've also talked separate to the French strategy on wider political understanding and I think one broader kind of trajectory would be to actually don't try and delegitimize Calvin Robinson or, or Lawrence Fox or someone like that via prevent that's not what it's there for but if you do think they are threats political threats a dangerous kind of threat everyone blowing it up but if you actually just feel you fight those individuals in the public square. Mm. Their attitude that you should take to those individuals because you think actually their rhetoric will, or the path in which they are going will undermine our democratic norms, undermine our freedoms, undermine our tolerance. That's perfectly legitimate. Go after those figures. But also be able to understand that there are Islamists out there who also, in their own ideology, will undermine those freedoms as well and those tolerances as well. Liberal left is really strong, understandably. Being able to spot a fascist or where someone's rhetoric or conspiracy theories 
will drift into undermining our democratic norms and lead to kind of fascistic outcomes potentially we are less able to have that clarity and vision when it comes to tackling islamism and i think that's a political issue and also there's a broader issue we talked about about lack of understanding and naivety as well around tackling extremism i think we've sort of touched on three threads mm. you tugged them probably but does that make sense would you agree that they yeah i think I- I think that's very well put. Yeah, I, I think that's very well put. I don't want to too, too much to add to that. It's a nice, uh, nice little conclusion. Those threads, let's keep pulling at them. And Liam, thank you for coming on this podcast. And also thank you for writing so openly about these issues. I think I've learned a tremendous amount from your, from your columns and, and from your tweets. and learned also quite a bit about French Rugby League from your tweets as well. And that and keep up your work I'll, I'll, I'll stay in touch and yeah thank you very much uh, that's, that's really really kind and really good to hear that you've uh, you've learned something that's all I can ask for and that's the best feedback I can ask for so I appreciate that and uh, yeah thanks for the chat Brilliant. thanks Liam take care thank you for listening to this episode of the Stepping Out of Line podcast if you'd like to support the podcast and get additional content like bonus episodes and show notes sign up to our Patreon at www.com patreon.com slash stepping out of line that's www.patreon.com slash stepping out of line if you want to find out more about liam and what he's getting up to make sure to check him out on twitter at liam sd12 that's at liam sd12 and if you want to find out more about what leo's up to make sure to check out his twitter at leo underscore fh that's at leo underscore fh thanks again for listening to this episode of the podcast i hope you listen to the next one